Now is that blessed time together where we take God's Word and open it and begin to consider. I'm going to ask you to return with me to Acts chapter 16 this morning, if you would. We have begun uh, and, and seen in the last couple of weeks, we've been unpacking the power of that idea thematically where the Lord opened Lydia's heart that we would understand those things more clearly and the profound change that that brings by God in the life and response. Today, we're going to carry on and carry, uh, see a larger section of the narrative as it unfolds. And then next week, again, we'll look back thematic, thematically, more specifically, of, to this idea in the passage where it says, you and your household. So listen as I read right now from verse 16 down through verse 40. Then we'll pray and open it up together. Listen as I read God's word. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, or Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. He received this order and he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his household. And he took them that same hour of night and washed their wounds. And he, he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his, into his house, set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailers reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have said to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us in prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, 
let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Lord, again this morning, we are very, very thankful to you for this privilege and opportunity that we as your people can come together in the name of Christ. We're thankful that we have your word available and accessible to us. Lord, we're thankful that we can gather and we can open it up. We can read it. We can study it. We can consider it. We can seek you that by your grace, through the enablement of your spirit, that we might understand this passage, the things from this passage, even as they pertain to our own lives, even as they pertain to your great power and hand displayed at that time. Lord, we thank you that your word is a powerful and living word. And we ask, O oh God, that you would cause it to have a meaningful effect upon us this morning who are gathered here. Lord, we pray that you would teach us by your spirit, through your word, grant that I would speak clearly, simply. And I pray you would give us all ears to hear and hearts to follow. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as we take this up, I've called this section um, Suffering, Singing, and Salvation. What we, ha what we see is uh, uh, Paul and Silas, as well as now there's also uh, Luke and Timothy, they have made their way to Macedonia. As they reached Macedonia, they had made their way to Philippi. At Philippi, they had gone next to the river uh, uh, to look for someone that they might share with, supposing it to be a place of prayer. Since there was no synagogue in the area of Philippi, they would oft meet out by the river. And we had seen the gracious power of God at work in bringing salvation to Lydia as she and, and her household were gathered there where the word of God says, God opened her heart to pay attention. And just that rich reality of everyone's utter dependence. When we're dead in our trespasses and sin, we are darkened in our understanding. Our, all of our inclinations and directions are towards those things that are deceitful, those things that are wicked. But God had a purpose, and that was the day of salvation for Lydia. And he opened her heart. And when he opened her heart, we also acknowledge, when God does his work, there is a visible effect of that work. There is a response that flows forth from the individual, which is why we have such confusion in these days. People tend to attribute the response as somehow coming out of men. And then sadly, some speak of the salvation of God that might not even bring a response out of men. The beautiful lesson that the scripture gives us is that God, by his divine power, takes one who is dead and makes them alive. Takes one whose heart is hard and dead in trespasses and sin and gives them a new heart, a receptive heart, a heart of flesh. He makes a new creation in Christ Jesus. And as a new creation in Christ Jesus, they are now created in Christ Jesus, as it says in Ephesians 2.10, unto good works that God prepared for them to walk in. The Lord opened her heart, and the ESV says, and she paid attention. 
The Lord is the one who's active in the opening of the heart. She is passive in that. But once God opens the heart, God's people aren't passive anymore. They are by divine enablement participatory. She actively, it says, gave attention. But we looked at that word that it's not simply gave attention. She adhered to. She clung to. She grabbed hold to not let go of those things that Paul was teaching. And by the grace of God, we saw that salvation resulted that day for her and for many of the others of her household, which we expect were predominantly ladies at that time, who were baptized and added to the kingdom of God. Now we come on to verse 16, and Paul is still there looking to continue to reach out for opportunities and ways to get the gospel into this community. He knows that by God's design, he was to go, that help was needed in this place. He has come there with the word of God. And so he's uh, going from place to place, off going out to the river, looking for those who have uh, uh, some readiness to receive. We see there at the beginning of verse uh, 16 again, as we were going to the place of prayer. So there was a noted place of prayer where he oft knew this is where the the Jews will go and, and they would take the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles because with them he could say all that had been promised by Moses and the prophets has come and been fulfilled in Christ. And then as there was this community that understood the, the glorious fulfillment of God's plan reaching its glorious climax in the person of Christ, as God opened people's hearts, he would begin to establish a church in that place and, and a broader witness in that place as those people would be interacting with others. But listen, as he's doing that, the first thing I want us to note here is he faces... A demonic acclamation. Now, this demon has come, come along, and this demon is pronouncing certain things. What, what's interesting about this, of course, to, to some extent, is it, it, the demon is in a slave girl. The slave girl, according to the text here, had a spirit of divination. Now, just to get a sense of this, sometimes people think of, uh, of fortune tellers or whatever as some kind of natural or even neutral thing. It is not a neutral thing. I mean, obviously there are, there are charlatans out there, you know. I think somewhere, someday, someplace it just might rain. Well, good job there. But... Uh, but there are others, and this one here where it says spirit of divination, the word there is actually pathona. Now, let me Englishize that. It's from the word that we get the term python. It is a reference to a type of serpent. And this, is, this was even to the people who were of, of Greek-speaking language. It would be a reference to uh, uh, this imaginary animal that was protective on the way um, to the temple of Delphi. 
And it was this, this evil spirit that would, would speak through the Delphic temple. This is a place where people would travel to. If someone was going to go to war in the, in the uh, Macedonian Roman community, they would have to get approval from the gods. And so they would go to the oracle at Delphi and they would have to get a word. But it's interesting to note that this that spoke of things to come, this who was telling people what they should and should not do is being referred to by a term that would be a great serpent or dragon. Which just if you get that, that's not neutrality. This is an evil spirit. And this evil spirit is in this slave girl and as a result, now, does the devil know the future? Does not know the entirety of the future. The devil and demons know a little something of the future. When Jesus came, the, the garrison demon says, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? They know there's an appointed time. <laughs> they know that they are going to come under the judgment of the Son of Man. So, yeah, they know some of the things that are going to happen in the plan of God. But they don't know all of the details. In fact, it seems this sad demon was unaware that by its constant provocation, it would lose its place of residence. Means right now it's in this slave woman, and because it's speaking through this slave woman, it's not going to get to stay there anymore. It's going to get sent out. And we've got to understand this. Uh, ultimately, all that the devil and demons do is self-defeating. All that they undertake, they think they are achieving victory. They think they're achieving progress. Remember, Satan entered into Judas's heart, and so he betrayed Jesus. And that you get this sense that as Jesus is nailed to the cross, that Satan is, is in a moment of excitement and elation and almost ready to say, victory is mine. And yet, was that victory? Or was that what secured the sure end and loss of him? Victory was declared over sin, over death, over the, the grave. Indeed, both the enemy and all the principalities and powers were shown to have been defeated by the work of God. And so the very, the very undertakings that the enemy often does are self-defeating. Now, I, sometimes I get worried about this uh, in, in peculiar Christian circles People get all worked up and concerned and even, even a, a, afraid of demons or evil spirits. Now, generally speaking, we don't want to socialize with them and invite them to our house and such. But nonetheless, there doesn't seem to be much fear, much concern and, and actually, when, when this passage unfolds, and if you think of it as it unfolds, do they suffer at the hands of demons, Paul and Silas? Or do they suffer at the hands of sinful men? I mean, what, what was a greater danger to them at this point? Demons or sinful men? And yet we get really worked up over demons. 
And there's, there's no need of that. We, we don't engage them all that much. And this is a strange section because what this uh, demon through this woman is proclaiming, listen to what he says. These men, verse 17, are servants of the Most High God. All right, what are you, is, this is like the demon of marketing, you know, of promotion. It, these people who have come, they're servants of the Most High God. Well, why do demons want to tell people that? And then again, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And I think, wow, that's glorious. But I will say this sadly. If you look a little bit more closely in the original language there, where we have the, where it says the way of salvation, the is not there in the Greek. So basically, the demon is actually saying, proclaim to you a way of salvation. See, I'll tell you this, that is one of the most strategic tools of the enemy. In, the, in that entire phrase, one word made the most significant difference. And weirdly enough, it didn't show up properly in our translations. A way of salvation. If it's only a way of salvation, what is also subtly being communicated? There's other ways. But are there other ways? But listen, somebody might hear that and say, look, 99.9% correct. Let's go to her church. No, not 99.9% correct. We've got to be careful. I've interacted with some dear ones through the years who will be referring to certain among popular television preachers. And they'll say, I know he must be teaching the truth because... Um, they show verses at the bottom of the screen, and when he reads, what he reads is exactly what it says at the bottom of the screen, exactly what it says in my Bible. Have we ever read the temptation of Jesus by Satan? What was one of the tools that Satan used in an attempt to even mislead the Son of God? He quoted to him out of Psalm 91. And what Jesus' response wasn't, you misquoted that, you misunderstood it, or you're wrong. It was, you don't know enough. You don't know it all. Because the scriptures also say, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. To know some and to speak some but still include, exclude other important things can be very dangerous. We don't ever want to add to what God's Word says. But there is a serious danger also in omitting, in holding back. We must declare the whole counsel of God's Word. And so this demon will, uh, uh, speaks out. But what's interesting is with the shouted endorsement, strangely, demons did this with some regularity. In Matthew chapter um, 8, 
Verse 29, as Jesus encounters some demons, they, say, they cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? I mean, this was an idea that as yet, the apostles themselves did not even grasp. That none understood it. And here are these demons declaring it to be so. In Luke chapter 4, verse 33, in Capernaum, it says, um, in, And in the synagogue, 4.33, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. I mean, what's shocking is these demons with great frequency gave Jesus a glowing endorsement. Whereas the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the spiritual leaders of that age, did they give Jesus that same kind of endorsement? No. Now, surely the demon's goal is not to get people to follow them. And also I want you to note this. Where was this, this demon-possessed individual hanging out? In the synagogue. The place people might think they're safe. But when we, when we see this, I, I, wanna, I want us to note this. Listen. Whether demons or whether um, important influential leaders of man, the gospel needs no endorsement. An endorsement of who Christ is by an individual does not save anyone. It is the Spirit alone, by the power of God, that brings a, a, a person to see and believe in Christ for who and what He is. There is, there, there is no, nothing. Sometimes, and this gets confused, I remember years ago when we were living in India, uh, it becomes common in places where it's difficult to communicate and you don't have uh, the language skills for people to produce and disseminate the Jesus film. Have you ever heard of that? And, then, and they'll try to translate in that, that into a lot of different languages. I can't tell you exactly what year it was, but it would have been somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s. They put out a new version of the Jesus film. And you know what this version did? They thought this is the best version yet. Every 15 minutes... Now, I'm not endorsing films anyways. I love, I love the preaching of the gospel. But they thought, this will make it more effective. Every 15 minutes, the film would stop. And there would be a celebrity who would endorse Jesus. A popular film star. A popular athlete. A, I was going to say popular politician. I don't know if those words go together. A politician. <laughs> right? uh, uh, it, and, 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 and then it would go on. And then 15 minutes later, it would, it would go off and, the, and, and somebody else would be endorsing Jesus. And I, and I guess here was the thought behind that. If these people understand they approve of Jesus, they follow Jesus, that'll make them more likely to follow and appreciate Jesus. Is there something wrong with that? 
It's, it's trying to somehow bypass the grace of God and not understand that, no, no, no. Look, what they'd be doing is following that man or following that woman or appreciating their endorsement. How will, the, how will that kind of faith survive when persecution arises? How will it persevere through hardship? Or at that time, will they say, well, this just, I tried it. It's not working for me. Let me try something else. Because realistically, you want to play that game. Somebody can also pull up somebody who claims to have been raised in a Christian home, been committed, and uh, they're famous, and then they left it. They denied the existence of God. Maybe they became atheists. Maybe they, they abandoned the God of all grace and they follow after traditions that accumulate men's works as participative in salvation. Whatever it may be. Listen, we proclaim the gospel by simply making a list of popular, successful followers. That's shameful. We, the gospel does not need an endorsement of man. Indeed, it is the power of God unto salvation. Get the endorsements out of the way. If anything, look, that particular celebrity, that particular politician, can you believe God would save even them? Instead of being impressed like, wow, I want that too. It's like, no, they're often just like us tremendous sinners. And so we see this demonic acclamation saying, oh yes, these are great men. Yes, they are these things. But listen to what happens as, as, as the passage unfolds. The endorsement is not necessary. It is not beneficial. And further, it goes on to say this, verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days. All right, this was, this was a ongoing. Now, how many days? We don't know. It, it does not say. But it does say this. Paul, having become greatly annoyed. Can you believe that a Christian could ever become greatly annoyed? Have you ever been? Yeah. And, and sometimes the source of our annoyance is self-serving. <laughs> And sometimes the source of our annoyance has a righteous undergirding. At a certain point, possibly she's distracting, she's impeding what he's really wanting to do. And so he basically turns and, and says, not to the girl, says, said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Listen, and then the scripture says, it came out of her that very hour. Now, hold on a second. It took an hour? No, 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 no. It didn't take an hour. That is, again, part of the fact that we live in a different age and culture. If you were in this language to say, want to say, it came out of her at that very moment, this is the word you would use. You'll find this strange because we live in a world where we speak of hours, minutes, seconds. 
We go to things like milliseconds and tenths and hundreds of a second when we're timing runners and such. The smallest unit of time for them in the Greek language, the smallest unit was an hour. So when it says it came out that very hour, it's that's when it happened. Right then, in that moment. Now, so what then ha- what's the second thing that we see in this passage? Second thing we see is a discriminating or discriminatory assault. The owners, verse 19, saw that their hope of gain was gone. They dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace before the rulers. Again, it's a different world than we live in. Their marketplaces were often public squares. They were often outdoors. In those same outdoor areas, there would, often, there would be a section that would be reserved for rulers and magistrates. And when there were disputes, when there were practical cases, you would bring someone there. You would bring them before the rulers. It was, it was a sort of a quick, small claims court situation. And they brought them there. They dragged them before them. But listen, do they say they spoiled our means of income? Do they say they cast an evil spirit out of our slave girl? No. I mean, that'd be a weird thing to say. So what is it? Though we know their initial motives are selfish gain, how did they couch their attack on these men publicly? Listen to what it says in verse 20. These men are Jews. That's, their, that's the first accusation. Well, how's that an accusation? Well, not an accusation so much except in the sense that we are Romans. In Macedonia, even in Philippi, we, we are the descendants of Philip the Great. <laughs> you know, the, the father of Alexander the Great. We, we are an important, significant people. They're Jews. You know, they're our our slaves. They're the ones we rule over. We have taken over their lands. We We have oppressed them. These people are Jews. Are you trying to tell me that way back, thousands of years ago, discrimination took place? That people with regard to different ethnicities will have a problem with each other? Yes! I mean, that's happened in every place and in every age. And if, if you're actually ready for it, you'll see that it's not even unique there because even within the Jewish community... In the, in, in the days of Christ, for example, in, in uh, John 1.46, when Nathanael is told, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. What's his statement? Yeah, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? To them, yeah. I mean, we're all Jews, yeah, but they're from Nazareth. I mean, they're, they're, they're from a, a, a lower community. The same sense, um, 
You're all Galileans. You're from the, well, the old way of saying it, I guess nobody probably says it now. You're from the wrong side of the tracks. We all understand that phrase, right? Even the younger ones, hopefully. Explain it to them later, parents, if necessary. Uh, but, but that sense is, you know, you can have absolute the people from the same background and community, and you will still have mistreatment and discrimination. You will still have arrogance. You will still have condescension. You will still have injustice. You know why? Men are sinners. I say men in the broad sense. That's what inclusive of our dear women as well. So, uh, but but you, you, we we've got to, to to see what's happening here. These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Here's a, a big part of it. They're Jews. We're Romans. They do things one way, we do things another way. They're trying to influence us. That needs to stop. What they're doing is unlawful, inappropriate, unacceptable. The charge had four elements, if you really look at it. One, it had an ethnic element. They're Jewish. Two, it had a legal element. They're trying to get us to do what is unlawful for Romans to do. Three, it had a social element. They're disturbing our city. Four, it had a traditional element. They're advocating customs. Their way is not our way. Their culture is not our culture. They're trying to get us involved in cultural appropriation. They're trying, I mean, all of this kind of stuff. And they're putting these things out. In a, in, a, in a very strong way. But listen, this whole thing even would unfold. If you read from uh, uh, Luke chapter 13, you'll see that um, at, the, at that time, there had been uh, Pilate had collected a bunch of Galileans and he had mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans we're worse sinners than you. If you do not repent, you will likewise perish. Wait a second. Shouldn't Jesus have been declaiming the wickedness of Pilate? He could have, and it would have been appropriate to do so. What Pilate did was absolutely wicked. But what the scriptures constantly do into every, every situation of injustice, every evidence of oppression, it reminds us of this, that men are sinners and in need of repentance. And in the midst of all these difficult circumstances that are now being brought upon uh, 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 Paul and Silas, you can see that they still have one highest priority that they are going to persevere in, and that is to live and to serve and to speak for Christ. And in the midst of all that's gone on to them, God is going to work the salvation of one of their opponents, one of their enemies, right into this. Now go with me if you would, and I want us to, to, to just see what, what then was the response to them. 
after this accusation came, they, they said these things to the magistrates. It says this, uh, and, and li listen to what happened here in verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. All right, listen to me. What did Paul and Silas do to that crowd? They had done nothing. I mean, they, they seemed to be uh, 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 going to the place of prayer in terms of uh, careful interaction with individuals as God gave them opportunity. They were speaking of Christ. They cast one demon out of one slave girl. Now they're pushed into this place. Accusations are made against them. And the whole crowd joins in. What's wrong with this crowd? I mean, did they lose income? Why are they joining in? I'll tell you a little bit why. Sinners like sin. You know, and, 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 and I, it can absolutely snowball. And people band together, join together, and, and, and crazy, seemingly unthinkable things happen. I mean, we're aware of kind of the circumstances that are going on around us these days. And some, and, and some of the uh, unfolding events are heartbreaking. But I'll tell you some events, when you, th when you begin to think how mobs even function, there, there's occasions... Uh, for example, in India, where someone is crossing the road and a bus full of people does not see this pedestrian that's just crossing randomly and hits the individual and they fall to the ground and die. And on the occasion I'm referring to, let me tell you what happened and tell me if this is what you thought is the natural result of that. Seeing this person killed by the bus, a mob of people quickly gathered around. They didn't simply beat the bus driver. As people were trying to exit the bus, they would not let anyone exit the bus. They poured gasoline, lit the bus on fire, and everyone inside the bus, driver and all the passengers ended up dying because someone's got to pay. Someone's got to pay. That, uh, this isn't right. What happened to this, this girl who was walking isn't right. Someone's got to pay. We have this sense of injustice. But listen, is the justice of men going to be the right way? Often men's sense of justice, it flows out of all kinds of other things. I tell you this, whenever we see injustice, we should remember this. We're in a world of wickedness. But you know what? There is one whose throne's foundation is justice and righteousness. There is one who says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. 
There is one who is the judge of the living and the dead. And so we understand that there's going to be in the world in which we live, there's going to be injustice, there's going to be lawlessness, there's going to be assaults, there's going to be abuses, there's going to be mistreatment, there's going to be murder, there's going to be unrest and lack of peace. There is. And we remind us of this. Look, apart from Christ, there is no peace with God. Apart from Christ, there is no righteous standing. Apart from Christ bearing the justice of God for you, you would still be rightly condemned in your lawlessness and injustice. I'm saying whatever circumstance we find ourselves in in the world and in life, we take every thought captive to Christ. We take every issue captive to Christ, every circumstance captive to Christ. Now, some would, I would say this, listen, no matter what happens, and horrible things happen in this world, most of which we don't see and we're not personally aware of, but listen, no matter what we see and how bad it is, and it is bad, Christ is still glorious. And Christ is still and always the most important issue, topic, speaking, and conversation. I, I fear that we live in a world where we'll say, now is not the time to talk of that. We need to focus on this. We need to focus. Now is not the time. Listen. As long as today is today. It is the time to speak of Christ. Amen? And, and know this. Do we, in this passage, do we, do we blindly act like we're so spiritually minded we don't see injustice? We don't see wrong? We see injustice and we see wrong. Do we call them on that? We may call them on that too, because the last point in w that, that we see here today, look at a, a demanded apology, verse 35, Acts 6, 17, 16, 35. But the magistrate said, let them out, let them come out now and go in peace. And Paul said, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They perpetrated an injustice against us, and they want us to just uh, push it under the rug and go away? And what does he say? Let them come themselves and let them deal with it. Look, so I'm not, I'm not saying we've got to be so spiritually minded that whatever happens, we just say, well, there are sinners in the world. There are sinners in the world. That's how it's always going to be. That's true. There are sinners in the world, and that's how it's always going to be. But we as God's people are going to call wrong wrong. We're going to call right right. When wrong is done, we're going we're gonna to say that was wrong. Those people ought to answer for their wrong. But that was never going to become the apostle's priority. And even when I, when I look at what the apostle calls for, there's a part in me that says, all you're asking them to do is come and let you out? You're bruised and bloody. I mean, shouldn't you also get five minutes with the rods on these guys? I mean, that, that's, that's my humanity speaking, and I think we understand that. But so it's like he, he's... He's recognizing, but there's bigger priorities. There's bigger issues. 
And he's focused on those things because what's most important and what we, what we don't miss out in all these things, in this world where, where uh, so many difficulties and so many injustices happen, don't forget this, God is sovereign. God is working out his purposes. And listen, God had purposed, ready for this, the salvation of the Philippian jailer. God was going to bring that Philippian jailer to the hearing of the gospel through unique circumstances. Those unique circumstances was by the messengers being mistreated, abused, assaulted, beaten, and then imprisoned. I mean, they... But God was going to use all... Wait a second. Can't God get the message to the Philippian jailer without Paul and Silas having to go through all of that? Well, he can. Who am I to say? I'm never going to say that God couldn't. But God had purposed to get that gospel to the jailer through the process of suffering of those men. Now, after they see God work salvation to, to this jailer and to his home, do you think they're looking up to God and saying, it's not worth it. It's not worth it that we would suffer like we did. The shame, the humiliation, the pain. It's not worth it. Do you think that's what they're saying? Or do you think they're praising God? Because as we, as we see how this unfolds, they're mistreated brutally. Again, this is not going to be unique. Remember, Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five, three times I have been beaten with rods. Again, our text here also says many blows. Now, the idea of rods there, you don't have to necessarily get in your mind iron rods. Often if it's iron rods, the scriptures will specifically say iron rods. But that doesn't necessarily soften it all that much if it's wooden rods. You know, again, this, this is not whips. I mean, this, this is... This is a, a, a brutal beating in a sense with something that may be akin to like baseball bats. That's, that can be absolutely brutal. He, he, but remember this, before this ever happened, what happened on his first missionary journey in Lystra? He was stoned and left for dead. Paul, as a Roman citizen, had a life that was constantly under the thumb of men, abusing him and mistreating him, and constantly facing uh, uh, these kinds of injustices. But what did he continue to do? Get up and speak the praise and glory of God. Even with regard to himself, he did not find, though they said these, these men are Jews, did Paul find the centrality of his identity in his ethnicity? No, what does it say in Philippians chapter 3? 
Yeah, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I had all these things. But you know, I consider everything loss compared to knowing Christ and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through Christ. To where our ultimate identity is now who? Christ. More than anything else that this world offers. And I'll tell you this. Know this well. The days are coming and in different places of the world already exist where suffering is for the sake of the name. Remember when they were first beaten, the apostles in early Acts, they left rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. And I, again, my mind is, is, is baffled by that because my natural tendency would be more like, get them, God. You saw, you know what they did. I did not deserve that. Get them. But their view was, we know as those who represent Christ, they're going to get us even as they got after him. He was not of the world, and the world hated him. The world rejected him. Jesus said, even as I am not of the world, so you are also not of the world. You will not be loved by the world. And the more we stand for Christ, the more we will find ourselves marginalized. You know, the bolder and the more communicative we are, those who really desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Those who uh, want to live a silent life, not so much. Those who want to live some kind of uh, uh, secretness. Now, pressing on. Look at this disarming approach. What did they do? About midnight. Here they are in jail, in pains. Not only are they in bonds, but they're also in stocks. So they're in a circumstance that's uncomfortable, that would not allow for proper rest, that would not, not allow for proper sleep. It was going to be a miserable circumstance in stocks. And what are they doing? Singing and praying. What is their prayer? I do not know. What are they singing? Well, I, mean, I, can, I could potentially speculate about their prayer. But, and the only way I would speculate is, what do we see as an apostolic prayer in Acts chapter 4 following threats and persecution? Sovereign God, these are the things that you have said happen. As they happen to us, grant us boldness to continue. Wouldn't be unthinkable that they might pray a, a similar prayer to that. And then it says singing, and the KJV carries the sense of this word used for singing. It's the word that we use for hymn or hymnos. Uh, it is singing praises to God. So listen, they are the, the, the tone of what they're doing, of their praying and singing, the tone of it in the language is praise to God. Now listen, this is, it's not in the genitive, so it's not praise of God, which we ought to always be praising God, but this is praise to Him. 
And listen, as they're doing that and unfolding that praise, uh, God brings about just a demonstrable action. What is it? Suddenly, there was an earthquake. All right, so who are they praying? Who are they calling out to? Who are they praising? God. And in that moment, in that place, there is an earthquake. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced earthquakes. They're awesome. I mean, it, it is just quite something to where you're either laying there or sitting there, and suddenly the earth around you just begins to shake. And, 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 and you think, where is this coming from? Who is doing this? The whole house, the whole building, the whole city, sometimes wider, is shaking. It's an awesome display of power. You know, I, I often say this. Whenever you see powerful storms, whenever there are powerful earthquakes, these are but whispers of the power of God for us to just sit back and say, wow. In those occasions, there's nothing that men can do but get under their desks, get in the doorway, you know, whatever it is, run and hide and hope. But God is an absolute power. And what's remarkable in this is for when we begin to see these things that oft seem random to us, we see specific. Now, this does not tell me the scope of this. I don't know if the earthquake was the prison only or the whole area. I have no idea. But I know its specific effect in the prison. It opened all the prison doors and removed all the prisoners' shackles. That's weird, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, that is a very specific effect in a very specific place. The doors that would have been latched with a bar, not, not a key lock like ours, and shackles are not handcuffs. Things are different in those days. But nonetheless, effective that men couldn't escape them, and nor would they ordinarily, whoop, just fell off. No, no, no. These were designed to keep men captive and all those things that were designed to keep men captive under the power of God, what happened? Captive no more. Oh, what a remarkable spiritual parallel there is in that for you to consider. Uh, and, and as they did it, what, what's also interesting is as they were singing, the prisoners were listening. What was the jailer doing? Snoozing. Now, he may have listened for a time and then, you know, went off to sleep. And when he awoke, now, I, I like that because generally uh, in our human responses, we would think what? Jailer's sleeping. He's lost. Prisoners are listening. They're probably going to be saved. And in this particular story, ha, you wrong. The, the prisoners now, I don't know what happened with the prisoners. It doesn't give us any details. But the one who we think is least interested, least effective, when God works with power, suddenly everything is changed. And he, he wakes up and he comes in and we see a desperate asking. What does he say? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
Now, even the asking of that question can to a degree inform me of what might have been a part of their praise to God. They may have been praising him that, look, though people can lock us in the prison, we who were slaves to sin, you have set free. Though we can fall under the injustice and judgment of men, we know that we now stand righteous before the judgment of God. They may have been saying these things because he had heard something such that when it was all done and these men hadn't left and they saved him from killing himself, he runs in and he says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There is an earthly sense in which he was already saved. He's not going to be punished and killed for the escape of the prisoners. Why are you asking what must you must do? All the prisoners are here. You're safe. You can be safe in the circumstances of this world, but you're not safe if you're apart from Christ. You still need to be saved. And he had somehow through something that was said come to know that. And what was the response? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now listen, some would say, see, whenever anybody asks, that's all you got to tell them. That, that's the ultimate answer. But to simply say that, they haven't heard the gospel. You can't, can't just say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You got to tell them who he is, who sent him, why he was sent, what he accomplished in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Which is why, if you, if you look with me here, he gives that answer and it says this. And so many of our brothers and sisters stop there at the end of verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then what does verse 32 say? And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to his household. They then are taken by him, and they unpack the explanation of the gospel for this man. When someone simply says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, that's true. But until you unpack the word of God for them, that's just a weird sentence. And so they opened it up for them, and God did a great work. What also I find interesting is both Lydia as well as he and his household, when they believed, when they repented, the very next verse says they were baptized. Paul would say, uh, into what were you baptized? The baptism was so essential to the early church practice to identify with Christ in that work of baptism. And I also want you to note this. It says there, he was baptized at once. Just something to think about because some churches today would probably jump on in there and want to give Paul a lesson in ecclesiology. Paul, he hasn't gone through the new members class yet. You know, he hasn't proven through a sustained fruit that he's really born again, so uh, you probably ought to hold off there. Okay, those are our traditions. <laughs> those are our patterns, and it's scary to a degree when our patterns and practices are so different from the Scriptures. Instead of that which would, would identify on that day of their salvation, I have 
died and I am now raised to newness of life. I am no longer my own. I belong to Christ. I've been bought with a price. I was uncleaned and now by faith in him, I am now washed clean and forgiven of my sin. All the power of those things, we've, we've changed that out. We've simply said, raise your hand. Nod your head. Repeat these words. You know. Our time is expired. Just a, a simple overview of the things that we saw today. A demonic acclamation, saying these things and giving them promotion, not necessary. The gospel is the power of God. Men can't make it stronger by their, by their personal approval of it or disapproval of it. The gospel saves the lost sheep. Secondly, we saw the discriminatory assault. They came against these people. They came against their ethnicity. They came against their practices. They came against them. They were treated with severe injustice. Thirdly, their initial response to that was an absolute disarming approach, prayer and singing praise to God. In that, we see a demonstrable action that God displayed himself as the one who hears prayers, as the one who powerfully works and moves. We saw a desperate asking what must I do to be saved? We saw a definitive answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they unpacked it by the scripture. And even it ended there with them giving a demanded apology. Listen, we're in this world. We want to call right, right. Wrong, wrong. When we call wrong, wrong, it gives us the opportunity to point out to the world the injustices that are perpetrated by others. But so oft what's missed in that is yeah, the people you're pointing at are perpetrators of injustice and lawlessness. But you know what else? So are all of us. And let us not any of us think that we are better than those that the Tower of Siloam fell on, than those in Galilee whose blood was mixed. Let us not think that we're better. Unless we repent, we will likewise perish. May God give us the boldness and the graciousness and the opportunity to stand alongside others and call wrong, wrong. But in the midst of that, to remind them that there is a more significant wrong in the lives of all of us and a necessary repentance and the only hope of salvation, which is in Christ. Let me pray and then let us uh, uh, prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we are just... Um, just amazed at, at your word and how it continues to, to, to speak and reveal things that even in the very passage that we're looking at today, to a degree, have parallels to our present experience. It is always astounding when we uh, listen with humble hearts at the pertinence, the relevance to our lives and to our world that your living word always has. Lord, and we thank you that in the process of that, it reminds us what are our highest priorities, and that is we're to fix our eyes upon Christ. We are to use our mouths to speak of Christ. Lord, we thank you that in a greater sense than any that the world understands, as we considered earlier this morning in 2 Corinthians, you have made us ministers of reconciliation. You've given us a message 
of reconciliation. Not the temporal and social one that the world speaks of, that we do indeed long to see, but of one of, of far greater significance and eternal importance. Lord, we thank you for the reconciliation and forgiveness that is ours in Christ alone. Amen.